she added in a lower voice. Chapters 19 through 21 of The Masquerader. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Masquerader by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter 19. And so it came about that Loder was freed from one responsibility to undertake another. From the morning of March 27th, when Lakeley had expounded the political program in the offices of the St. George's Gazette, to the afternoon of April 1st he found himself a central figure in the whirlpool of activity that formed itself in conservative circles. With the acumen for which he was noted, Lakeley had touched the keystone of the situation on that morning, and succeeding events, each fraught with its own importance, had established the precision of his forecast. Minutely watchful of Russia's attitude, Frayed quietly organized his forces and strengthened his position with a statesmanlike grasp of opportunity, and to Loder the attributes displayed by his leader during those trying days formed an endless and absorbing study. Setting the thought of Chilcote aside, ignoring his own position and the risk he daily ran, he had fully yielded to the glamour of the moment, and in the first freedom of a loose rein he had given unreservedly all that he possessed of activity, capacity, and determination to the cause that had claimed him. Singularly privileged in a constant personal contact with Fraid, he learned many valuable lessons of tact and organization in those five vital days during which the tactics of a whole party hung upon one item of news from a country thousands of miles away. For should Russia subdue the insurgent Hazaras, and, laden with the honors of the peacemaker, retire across the frontier, then the political arena would remain undisturbed. But should the all-important movement predicted by Lakeley become an accepted fact before Parliament rose for the Easter recess, then the first blow in the fight that would rage during the succeeding session must inevitably be struck. In the meantime it was Fraid's difficult position to wait and watch and yet preserve his dignity. It was early in the afternoon of March 29th that Loder, in response to a long-standing invitation, lunched quietly with the Freyds. Being delayed by some communications from work, he was a few minutes late in keeping his appointment, and on being shown into the drawing-room found the little group of three that was to make up the party already assembled. Fraid, Lady Sarah, and Eve. As he entered the room they ceased to speak, and all three turned in his direction. In the first moment he had a vague impression of responding suitably to Lady Sarah's cordial greeting, but he knew that immediately and unconsciously his eyes turned to Eve, while a quick sense of surprise and satisfaction passed through him at sight of her. For an instant he wondered how she would mark his avoidance of her since their last eventful interview. Then instantly he blamed himself for the passing doubt, for before all things he knew her to be a woman of the world. He took Fraid's outstretched hand, and again he looked towards Eve, waiting for her to speak. She met his glance, but said nothing. Instead of speaking she smiled at him, a smile that was far more reassuring than any words, a smile that in a single second conveyed forgiveness, approbation, and a warm, almost tender sense of sympathy and comprehension. 
the remembrance of that smile stayed with him long after they were seated at table, and far into the future the remembrance of the lunch itself, with its pleasant private sense of satisfaction, was destined to return to him in retrospective moments. The delightful atmosphere of the Freyds' home life had always been a wonder and an enigma to him, but on this day he seemed to grasp its meaning by a new light as he watched Eve soften under its influence and felt himself drawn imperceptibly from the position of a speculative outsider to that of an intimate. It was a fresh side to the complex, fascinating life of which Freyd was the master spirit. These reflections had grown agreeably familiar to his mind. The talk, momentarily diverted into social channels, was quietly drifting back to the inevitable question of the situation that in private moments was never far from their lips when the event that was to mark and separate that day from those that had preceded it was unceremoniously thrust upon them. Without announcement or apology, the door was suddenly flung open and Lakely entered the room. His face was brimming with excitement and his eyes flashed. In the first haste of the entry he failed to see that there were ladies in the room, and crossing instantly to Freyd, laid an open telegram before him. "'This is official, sir,' he said. Then at last he glanced round the table. "'Lady Sarah,' he exclaimed, "'can you forgive me? But I'd have given a hundred pounds to be the first with this.' He glanced back at Freyd. Lady Sarah rose and stretched out her hand. "'Mr. Lakely,' she said, "'I more than understand.' There was a thrill in her warm, cordial voice, and her eyes also turned towards her husband. Of the whole party, Fraid alone was perfectly calm. He sat very still, his small thin figure erect and dignified, as his eyes scanned the message that meant so much. Eve, who had sprung from her seat and passed round the table at sound of Lakely's news, was leaning over his shoulder, reading the telegram with him. At the last word she lifted her head, her face flushed with excitement. "'How splendid it must be to be a man!' she exclaimed, and without premeditation her eyes and Loder's met. In this manner came the news from Persia, and with it Loder's definite call. In the momentary stress of action it was impossible that any thought of Chilcote could obtrude itself. Events had followed each other too rapidly, decisive action had been too much thrust upon him, to allow of hesitation, and it was in this spirit, under this vigorous pressure, that he made his attack upon the government on the day that followed Fraid's luncheon party, that indefinable attentiveness, that alert sensation of impending storm that is so strong an index of the parliamentary atmosphere, was very keen on that memorable first of April. It was obvious in the crowded benches on both sides of the house in the oneness of purpose that insensibly made itself felt through the ranks of the opposition, and found definite expression in Fraid's stiff figure and tightly shut lips, in the unmistakable uneasiness that lay upon the ministerial benches. But notwithstanding these indications of battle, the early portion of the proceedings was unmarked by excitement, being tinged with the purposeless lack of vitality that had of late marked all affairs of the Sefborough ministry, and it was not until the adjournment of the house for the Easter recess had at last been moved that the spirit of activity hovering in the air descended and galvanized the assembly into life. It was then, amid a stir of interest, 
that Loder slowly rose. Many curious incidents have marked the speech-making annals of the House of Commons, but it is doubtful whether it has ever been the lot of a member to hear his own voice raised for the first time on a subject of vital interest to his party, having been denied all initial assistance of minor questions asked or unimportant amendments made. Of all those gathered together in the great building on that day, only one man appreciated the difficulty of Loder's position, and that man was Loder himself. He rose slowly and stood silent for a couple of seconds, his body braced, his fingers touching the sheaf of notes that lay in front of him. To the waiting house the silence was effective. It might mean over-assurance, or it might mean a failure of nerve at a critical moment. Either possibility had a tinge of piquancy. Moved by the same impulse, fifty pairs of eyes turned upon him with new interest. But up in the ladies' gallery Eve clasped her hands in sudden apprehension, and Fraid, sitting stiffly in his seat, turned and shot one swift glance at the man on whom, against prudence and precedent, he had pinned his fate. The glance was swift but very searching, and with a characteristic movement of his wiry shoulders he resumed his position and his usual grave, attentive attitude. At the same moment Loder lifted his head and began to speak. Here at the outset his inexperience met him. His voice, pitched too low, only reached those directly near him. It was a moment of great strain. Eve, listening intently, drew a long breath of suspense and let her fingers drop apart. The skeptical, watchful eyes that faced him, line upon line, seemed to flash and brighten with critical interest. Only Fraid made no change of expression. He sat placid, serious, attentive, with the shadow of a smile behind his eyes. Again Loder paused, but this time the pause was shorter. The ordeal he had dreaded and waited for was past, and he saw his way clearly. With the old movement of the shoulders he straightened himself and once more began to speak. This time his voice rang quietly true and commanding across the floor of the house. No first step can be really great. It must of necessity possess more of prophecy than of achievement. Nevertheless, it is by the first step that a man marks the value not only of his cause but of himself. Following broadly on the lines that tradition has laid down for the conservative orator, Loder disguised rather than displayed the vein of strong persuasive eloquence that was his natural gift. The occasion that might possibly justify such a display of individuality might lie with the future, but it had no application to the present. For the moment his duty was to voice his party sentiments with as much lucidity, as much logic, and as much calm conviction as lay within his capacity. Standing quietly in Chilcote's place, he was conscious with a deep sense of gravity of the peculiarity of his position, and perhaps it was this unconscious and unstudied seriousness that lent him the tone of weight and judgment so essential to the cause he had in hand. It had always been difficult to arouse the interest of the House on matters of British policy in Persia once aroused it may it is true reach fever heat with remarkable rapidity but the introductory stages offer that worst danger to the earnest speaker the dread of an apathetic audience 
but from this consideration Loder, by his sharp consciousness of personal difficulties, was given immunity. Pitching his voice in that quietly masterful tone that beyond all others compels attention, he took up his subject and dealt with it with dispassionate force. With great skill he touched on the steady southward advance of Russia into Persian territory from the distant days when, by a curious irony of fate, Russian and British enterprise combined to make entry into the country under the sanction of the Grand Duke of Muscovy to the present hour when this great power of Russia, long since alienated by interest and desires from her former cooperator, had taken a step which in the eyes of every thinking man must possess a deep significance. With quiet persistence he pointed out the peculiar position of Meshed in the distant province of Khorasan, its vast distance from the Persian Gulf round which British interest and influence center, and the consequently alarming position of hundreds of traders who, in the security of British sovereignty, are fighting their way upward from India, from Afghanistan, even from England herself. Following up his point, he dilated on these subjects of the British crown who, cut off from adequate assistance, can only turn in personal or commercial peril to the protective power of the nearest consulate. Then, quietly demanding the attention of his hearers, he marshaled fact after fact to demonstrate the isolation and inadequacy of a consulate so situated. The all but arbitrary power of Russia, who in her new occupation of Meshed, had only two considerations to withhold her from open aggression. The knowledge of England as a very considerable, but also a very distant power, the knowledge of Persia as an imminent but wholly impotent factor in the case. Having stated his opinions, he reverted to the motive of his speech, his desire to put forward a strong protest against the adjournment of the House without an assurance from the government that immediate measures would be taken to safeguard British interest in Meshed and throughout the province of Khorasan. The immediate outcome of Loder's speech was all that his party had desired. The effect on the House had been marked, and when, no satisfactory response coming to his demand, he had in still more resolute and insistent terms called for a division on the motion for adjournment, the result had been an appreciable fall in the government majority. To Loder himself, the realization that he had at least vindicated and justified himself by individual action had a peculiar effect. His position had been altered in one remarkable particular. Before this day he alone had known himself to be strong. Now the knowledge was shared by others, and he was human enough to be susceptible to the change. The first appreciation of it came immediately after the excitement of the division, when Fraid, singling him out, took his arm and pressed it affectionately. "'My dear Chilcote,' he said, "'we are all proud of you.' Then, looking up into his face, he added in a graver tone, "'But keep your mind upon the future. Never be blinded by the present, however bright it seems.' At the touch of his hand, at the spontaneous approval of his first words, Loder's pride thrilled, and in a vehement rush of ambition his senses answered to the praise. Then as Fraid in all unconsciousness added his second sentence, the hot glow of feeling suddenly chilled. In the sweep of intuitive reaction the meaning and the danger of his falsely real position extinguished his excitement and turned his triumph cold. 
with an involuntary gesture he withdrew his arm. "'You're very good, sir,' he said, "'and you're very right. We never should forget that there is a future.' The old man glanced up, surprised by the tone. "'Quite so, Chilcote,' he said kindly. "'But we only advise those in whom we believe to look towards it. Shall we find my wife? I know she will want to bear you home with us.' But Loder's joy in himself and his achievement had dropped from him. He shrank suddenly from Lady Sarah's congratulations and Eve's warm, silent approbation. "'Thanks, sir,' he said, "'but I don't feel fit for a society. A touch of my nerves, I suppose.' He laughed shortly. "'But do you mind saying to Eve that I hope I have satisfied her?' He added this as if in half-reluctant afterthought. Then, with a short pressure of Fraid's hand, he turned, evading the many groups that waited to claim him, and passed out of the house alone. Hailing a cab, he drove to Grosvenor Square. All the exultation of an hour ago had turned to ashes. His excitement had found its culmination in a sense of futility and premonition. He met no one in the hall or on the stairs of Chilcote's house, and on entering the study he found that also deserted. Greening had been among the most absorbed of those who had listened to his speech. Passing at once into the room, he crossed as if by instinct to the desk, and there halted. On the top of some unopened letters lay the significant yellow envelope of a telegram, the telegram that in an unformed, subconscious way had sprung to his expectation on the moment of Fraid's congratulation. Very quietly he picked it up, opened and read it, and with the automatic caution that had become habitual, carried it across the room and dropped it into the fire. This done, he returned to the desk, read the letters that awaited Chilcote, and scribbling the necessary notes upon the margins, left them in readiness for greening. Then, moving with the same quiet suppression, he passed from the room, down the stairs, and out into the street by the way he had come. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 On the fifth day after the momentous first of April, on which he had recalled Loder and resumed his own life, Chilcote left his house and walked towards Bond Street. Though the morning was clear and the air almost warm for the time of year, he was buttoned into a long overcoat and was wearing a muffler and a pair of doeskin gloves. As he passed along the street he kept close to the house-fronts to avoid the sun that was everywhere stirring the winter-bound town like a suffusion of young blood through old veins. He avoided the warmth because in this instance warmth meant light, but as he moved he shivered slightly from time to time with the haunting, permeating cold that of late had become his persistent shadow. He was ill at ease as he hurried forward. With each succeeding day of the old life the new annoyances, the new obligations became more hampering. Before his compact with Loder this old life had been a net about his feet. Now the meshes seemed to have narrowed, the net itself to have spread till it smothered his whole being. His own household, his own rooms even, offered no sanctuary. The presence of another personality tinged the atmosphere. It was preposterous, but it was undeniable. The lay figure that he had set in his place had proved to be flesh and blood, had usurped his life, his position, his very personality, by sheer right of strength. 
as he walked along Bond Street in the first sunshine of the year, jostled by the well-dressed crowd, he felt a pariah. He revolted at the new order of things, but the revolt was a silent one. The iron of expediency had entered into his soul. He dared not jeopardize Loder's position, because he dared not dispense with Loder. The door that guarded his vice drew him more resistlessly with every indulgence, and Loder's was the voice that called the open sesame. He walked on aimlessly. He had been but five days at home, and already the quiet, grass-grown court of Clifford's Inn, the bare staircase, the comfortless privacy of Loder's rooms seemed a haven of refuge. The speed with which this hunger had returned frightened him. He walked forward rapidly and without encountering a check. Then suddenly the spell was broken. From the slowly moving, brilliantly dressed throng of people someone called him by his name, and turning he saw Lillian Astrup. She was stepping from the door of a jeweler's, and as he turned she paused, holding out her hand. "'The very person I would have wished to see!' she exclaimed. "'Where have you been these hundred years?' I've heard of nobody but you since you've turned politician and ceased to be a mere member of Parliament. She laughed softly. The laugh suited the light spring air, as she herself suited the pleasant superficial scene. He took her hand and held it, while his eyes travelled from her delicate face to her pale cloth gown, from her soft furs to the bunch of roses fastened in her muff. The sight of her was a curious relief. Her cool, slim fingers were so casual, yet so clinging. Her voice and her presence were so redolent of easy, artificial things. "'How well you look,' he said involuntarily. Again she laughed. "'That's my prerogative,' she responded lightly. "'But I was serious in being glad to see you. Sarcastic people are always so intuitive. I'm looking for someone with intuition.' Chilcote glanced up. "'Extravagant again?' he said dryly. She smiled at him sweetly. "'Jack!' she murmured with slow reproach. Chilcote laughed quickly. "'I understand. You've changed your minister of finance. I'm wanted in some other direction.' This time her reproach was expressed by a glance. "'You are always wanted,' she said. The word seemed to rouse him again to the shadowy self-distrust that the sight of her had lifted. "'It's... it's delightful to meet you like this,' he began and I wish the meeting wasn't momentary, but I'm, I'm rather pressed for time. You must let me come round one afternoon or evening when you're alone. He fumbled for a moment with the collar of his coat and glanced furtively upward towards Oxford Street. But again Lillian smiled, this time to herself. If she understood anything on earth, it was Chilcote and his moods. If one may be careless of anything, Jack, she said lightly, surely it's of time. I can imagine being pressed for anything else in the world. If it's an appointment you're worrying about, a motor goes ever so much faster than a cab. She looked at him tentatively, her head slightly on one side, her muff raised till the roses and some of the soft fur touched her cheek. She looked very charming and very persuasive as Chilcote glanced back. Again she seemed to represent a respite, something graceful and subtle in a world of oppressive obligations. His eyes strayed from her figure to the smart motor-car drawn up beside the curb. She saw the glance. "'Ever so much quicker,' she insinuated. 
and smiling again she stepped forward from the door of the shop. After a second's indecision Chilcote followed her. The waiting car had three seats, one in front for the chauffeur, two vis-a-vis -vis at the back, offering pleasant possibilities of a tete-a-tete. -tete. "'The park, and drive slowly,' Lillian ordered as she stepped inside, motioning Chilcote to the seat opposite. They moved up Bond Street smoothly and rapidly. Lillian was absorbed in the passing traffic until the marble arch was reached. Then, as they glided through the big gates, she looked across at her companion. He had turned up the collar of his coat, though the wind was scarcely perceptible, and buried himself in it to the ears. "'It is extraordinary!' she exclaimed, suddenly, as her eyes rested on his face. It was seldom that she felt drawn to exclamation. She was usually too indolent to show surprise. But now the feeling was called forth before she was aware. Chilcote looked up. "'What's extraordinary?' he said sensitively. She leaned forward for an instant and touched his hand. "'There,' she said teasingly, "'did I rub your fur the wrong way?' Then, seeing his expression, she tactfully changed her tone. "'I'll explain. It was the same thing that struck me the night of Blanche's party, when you looked at me over Leonard Kane's head. You remember?' She glanced away from him across the park to where the grass was already showing greener. Chilcote felt ill at ease. Again he put his hand to his coat-collar. "'Oh, yes,' he said hastily, "'yes.' He wished now that he had questioned Loder more closely on the proceedings of that party. It seemed to him on looking back that Loder had mentioned nothing on the day of their last exchange but the political complications that absorbed his mind. "'I couldn't explain then,' Lillian went on. "'I couldn't explain before a crowd of people that that it wasn't your dark head showing over Leonard's red one that surprised me, but the most wonderful, the most extraordinary likeness. She paused. The car was moving slower. There was a delight in the easy motion through the fresh early air. But Chilcote's uneasiness had been aroused. He no longer felt soothed. What likeness? he asked sharply. She turned to him easily. Oh, a likeness I have noticed before, she said, a likeness that always seemed strange, but that suddenly became incredible at Blanche's party. He moved quickly. Likenesses are an illusion, he said, a mere imagination of the brain. His manner was short, his annoyance seemingly out of all proportion to its cause. Lillian looked at him afresh in a slightly interested surprise. Yet not so very long ago you yourself she began nonsense he broke in i've always denied likenesses such things don't really exist likeness seeing is purely an individual matter a preconception he spoke fast he was uneasy under the cool scrutiny of her green eyes and with a sharp attempt at self-control and reassurance he altered his voice after all we're being very stupid he exclaimed we're worrying over something that doesn't exist Lillian was still lazily interested. To her own belief she had seen Chilcote last on the night of her sister's reception. Then she had been too preoccupied to notice either his manner or his health, though superficially it had lingered in her mind that he had seemed unusually reliant, unusually well on that night. A remembrance of the impression came to her now as she studied his face 
upon which imperceptibly and yet relentlessly his vice was setting its mark, in the dull restlessness of eye, the unhealthy sallowness of skin. Some shred of her thought, some suggestion of the comparison running through her mind, must have shown in her face, for Chilcote altered his position with a touch of uneasiness. He glanced away from the long sweep of tan-colored drive stretching between the trees. Then he glanced furtively back. "'By the way,' he said quickly, "'you wanted me for something?' The memory of her earlier suggestion came as a sudden boon. She lifted her muff again and smelled her roses thoughtfully. "'Oh, it was nothing, really,' she said. "'You sarcastic people give very shrewd suggestions sometimes, and I've been rather wanting a suggestion on an, an adventure that I've had.' She looked down at her flowers with a charmingly attentive air. But Chilcote's restlessness had increased. Looking up, she suddenly caught the expression, and her own face changed. "'My dear Jack,' she said softly, "'what a bore I am. Let's forget tedious things and enjoy ourselves.' She leaned towards him caressingly with an air of concern and reproach. The action was not without effect. Her soothing voice her smile, her almost affectionate gesture, each carried weight. With a swift return of assurance, he responded to her tone. Right, he said, right, we will enjoy ourselves. He laughed quickly, and again with a conscious movement lifted his hand to his muffler. Then we'll postpone the advice? Lillian laughed too. Yes, right, we'll postpone it. The word pleased him, and he caught at it. We won't bother about it now, but we won't shelve it altogether. We'll postpone it. Exactly. She settled herself more comfortably. You'll dine with me one night, and we can talk it out then. I see so little of you nowadays, she added in a lower voice. My dear girl, you're unfair. Chilcote's spirits had risen. He spoke rapidly, almost pleasantly. It isn't I who keep away. It's the stupid affairs of the world that keep me. I'd be with you every hour of the twelve if I had my way. She looked up at the bare trees. Her expression was a delightful mixture of amusement, satisfaction, and skepticism. Then you will dine, she said at last. Certainly. His reaction to high spirits carried him forward. How nice. Shall we fix a day? A day, yes, yes, if you like. He hesitated for an instant. Then again the impulse of the previous moment dominated his other feeling. Yes, he said quickly, yes. After all, why not fix it now? With a sudden inclination towards amiability, he opened his overcoat, thrust his hand into an inner pocket, and drew out his engagement book, the same long, narrow book fitted with two pencils that Loder had scanned so interestedly on the first morning at Grosvenor Square. He opened it, turning the pages rapidly. What day shall it be? Thursday's full, and Friday, and Saturday. What a bore! He still talked fast. Lillian leaned across. What a sweet book, she said. But why the blue crosses? She touched one of the pages with her gloved finger. Chilcote jerked the book, then laughed with a touch of embarrassment. Oh, the crosses? Merely to remind me that certain appointments must be kept. You know my beastly memory. But what about the day? Shall we fix the day? His voice was in control, but mentally her trivial question had disturbed and jarred him. What day shall we say, he repeated, Monday in next week? 
Lillian glanced up with a faint exclamation of disappointment. How horribly far away! She spoke with engaging petulance, and leaning forward afresh, drew the book from Chilcote's hand. What about tomorrow? she exclaimed, turning back a page. Why not tomorrow? I knew I saw a blank space. Tomorrow? Oh, I, I, he stopped. Jack, her voice dropped. It was true that she desired Chilcote's opinion on her adventure, for Chilcote's opinion on men and manners had a certain bitter shrewdness, but the exercise of her own power added a point to the desire. If the matter had ended with a gain or loss of a tete-a-tete -tete with him, it is probable that, whatever its utility, she would not have pressed it, but the underlying motive was the stronger. Chilcote had been a satellite for years, and it was unpleasant that any satellite should drop away into space. Jack, she said again, in a lower and still more effective tone, and, lifting her muff, she buried her face in her flowers. I suppose I shall have to dine and go to a music hall with Leonard or stay at home by myself, she murmured, looking out across the trees. Again Chilcote glanced over the long, tan-strewn ride. They had made the full circuit of the park. It's tiresome being by oneself, she murmured. For a while he was irresponsive. Then slowly his eyes returned to her face. He watched her for a second, and leaning quickly towards her, he took his book and scribbled something in the vacant space. She watched him interestedly, her face lighted up, and she laid aside her muff. "'Dear Jack,' she said, "'how very sweet of you!' Then, as he held the book towards her, her face fell. "'Dine, 33 Cadogan Gardens, 8 O.C. Talk with L. she read. "'Why, you've forgotten the essential thing!' He looked up. "'The essential thing?' She smiled. "'The Blue Cross,' she said. "'Isn't it worth even a little one?' The tone was very soft. Chilcote yielded. "'You have the blue pencil,' he said, in sudden response to her mood. She glanced up in quiet pleasure at her success, and with the charming affectation of seriousness marked the engagement with the big cross. At the same moment the car slackened speed as the chauffeur waited for further orders. Lillian shut the engagement book and handed it back. "'Where can I drop you?' she asked. "'At the club?' The question recalled him to a sense of present things. He thrust the book into his pocket and glanced about him. They had paused by Hyde Park Corner. The crowd of horses and carriages had thinned as the hour of lunch drew near, and the wide roadway of the park had an air of added space. The suggested loneliness affected him. The tall trees, still bereft of leaves, and the colossal gateway incomprehensibly stirred the sense of mental panic that sometimes seized him in face of vastness of space or of architecture. In one moment Lillian, the appointment he had just made, the manner of its making, all left him. The world was filled with his own personality, his own immediate inclinations. "'Don't bother about me,' he said quickly. "'I can get out here. You've been very good. It's been a delightful morning.' With a hurried pressure of her fingers he rose and stepped from the car. Reaching the ground he paused for a moment and raised his hat. Then, without a second glance, he turned and walked rapidly away. Lillian sat watching him meditatively. She saw him pass through the gateway, saw him hail a hansom, 
Then she remembered the waiting chauffeur. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 On the same day that Chilcote had parted with Lillian, but at three o'clock in the afternoon, Loder, dressed in Chilcote's clothes and with Chilcote's heavy overcoat slung over his arm, walked from Fleet Street to Grosvenor Square. He walked steadily, neither slowly nor yet fast. The elation of his last journey over the same ground was tempered by feelings he could not satisfactorily bracket even to himself. There was less of vehement elation and more of mature determination in his gait and bearing than there had been on that night, though the incidents of which they were the outcome were very complex. On reaching Chilcote's house he passed upstairs, but still following the routine of his previous return he did not halt at Chilcote's door, but moved onward towards Eve's sitting-room and there paused. In that pause his numberless irregular thoughts fused into one. He had the same undefined sense of standing upon sacred ground that had touched him on the previous occasion, but the outcome of the sensation was different. This time he raised his hand almost immediately and tapped on the door. He waited, but no voice responded to his knock. With a sense of disappointment he knocked again. Then, pressing his determination still further, he turned the handle and entered the room. No private room is without meaning, whether trivial or the reverse. In a room, perhaps more even than in speech, in look or in work, does the impress of the individual make itself felt. There, on the wax of outer things, the inner self imprints its seal, enforces its fleeting claim to separate individuality. This thought, with its arresting interest, made Loder walk slowly, almost seriously, halfway across the room, and then paused to study his surroundings. The room was of medium size, not too large for comfort and not too small for ample space. At a first impression it struck him as unlike any anticipation of a woman's sanctum. The walls paneled in dark wood, the richly bound books, the beautifully designed bronze ornaments, even the flowers, deep crimson and violet blue in tone, had an air of somber harmony that was scarcely feminine. With a strangely pleasant impression he realized this, and following his habitual impulse moved slowly forward towards the fireplace, and there paused, his elbow resting on the mantelpiece. He had scarcely settled comfortably into his position, scarcely entered on his second and more comprehensive study of the place, than the arrangement of his mind was altered by the turning of the handle and the opening of the door. The newcomer was Eve herself. She was dressed in outdoor clothes and walked into the room quickly. Then, as Loder had done, she too paused. The gesture, so natural and spontaneous, had a peculiar attraction. As she glanced up at him, her face alight with inquiry, she seemed extraordinarily much the owner and designer of her surroundings. She was framed by them as naturally and effectively as her eyes and her face were framed by her black hair. For one moment he forgot that his presence demanded explanation. The next she had made explanation needless. She had been looking at him intently, now she came forward slowly. John she said half in appeal, half in question. He took a step towards her. Look at me, he said, quietly.
quietly and involuntarily. In the sharp desire to establish himself in her regard he forgot that her eyes had never left his face. But the incongruity of the words did not strike her. "'Oh!' she exclaimed. "'I—I I believe I knew—directly I saw you here.' The quick ring of life vibrating in her tone surprised him. But he had other thoughts more urgent than surprise. In the five days of banishment just lived through, the need for a readjustment of his position with regard to her had come to him forcibly. The memory of the night when weakness and he had been at perilously close quarters had returned to him persistently and uncomfortably, spoiling the remembrance of his triumph. It had been well enough to smother the thought of that night in days of work, but had the ignoring of it blotted out the weakness? had it not rather thrown it into bolder relief? A man strong in his own strength does not turn his back upon temptation. He faces and quells it. In the solitary days in Clifford's Inn, in the solitary night hours spent in tramping the city streets, this had been the conviction that had recurred again and again, this the problem to which, after much consideration, he had found a solution, satisfactory, at least to himself. When next Chilcote called him, it was notable that he had used the word when and not if, when next Chilcote called him he would make a new departure. He would no longer avoid Eve. He would successfully prove to himself that one interest and one alone filled his mind, the pursuance of Chilcote's political career. So does man satisfactorily convince himself against himself. He had this intention fully in mind as he came forward now. Well, he said slowly, has it been very hard to have faith these last five days? It was not precisely the tone he had meant to adopt, but one must begin. Eve turned at his words. Her eyes were brimming with light her cheeks still touched to a deep, soft color by the keenness of the wintry air. No, she answered, with a shy, responsive touch of confidence. I seem to keep on believing. You know converts make the best devotees. She laughed with slight embarrassment and glanced up at him. Something in the blue of her eyes reminded him unexpectedly of spring skies, full of youth and promise. He moved abruptly and crossed the room towards the window. Eve, he said, without looking round, I want your help. He heard the faint rustling of her dress as she turned towards him, and he knew that he had struck the right chord. All true women respond to an appeal for aid as steel answers to the magnet. He could feel her expectancy in the silence. You know, we all know, that the present moment is very vital, that it's impossible to deny the crisis in the air. Nobody feels it more than I do. Nobody is more exorbitantly keen to have a share, a part when the real fight comes. He stopped, then he turned slowly and their eyes met. If a man is to succeed in such a desire, he went on deliberately, he must exclude all others. He must have one purpose, one interest, one thought. He must forget that. Eve lifted her head quickly. That he has a wife, she finished gently. I think I understand. There was no annoyance in her face or voice, no suggestion of selfishness or of hurt vanity. She had read his meaning with disconcerting clearness and responded with disconcerting generosity. 
a sudden and very human dissatisfaction with his readjustment scheme fell upon Loder. Opposition is the whip to action, a too ready acquiescence the slackened rein. Did I say that? he asked quickly. The tone was almost Chilcote's. She glanced up, then a sudden incomprehensible smile lighted up her face. You didn't say, but you thought, she answered gravely. Thoughts are the same as words to a woman. That's why we are so unreasonable. Again she smiled. Some idea, baffling and incomprehensible to Loder, was stirring in her mind. Conscious of the impression, he moved still nearer. You jumped to conclusions, he said abruptly. What I meant to imply was precisely what I've understood. Again she finished his sentence. Then she laughed softly. How very wise, but how very, very foolish men are. You come to the conclusion that because a woman is is interested in you she is going to hamper you in some direction and after infinite pains you summon all your tact and you set about saving the situation there was interest even a touch of amusement in her tone her eyes were still fixed upon his in an indefinable glance you think you are being very diplomatic she went on quietly but in reality you are being very transparent the woman reads the whole of your meaning in your very first sentence, if she hasn't known it before you began to speak. Again Loder made an interruption, but again she checked him. No, she said, still smiling. You should never attempt such a task. Shall I tell you why? He stood silent, puzzled, and interested. Because, she said quickly, when a woman really is interested, the man's career ranks infinitely higher in her eyes did any personal desire for power. For a moment their eyes met, then abruptly Loder looked away. She had gauged his intentions incorrectly, yet with disconcerting insight. Again the suggestion of an unusual personality below the serenity of her manner recurred to his imagination. With an impulse altogether foreign to him he lifted his head and again met her glance. Then at last he spoke but only two words. Forgive me, he said with simple, direct sincerity. End of chapter 21. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.